So this morning we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, and just a few verses from 8 through to 15. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. (coughs) I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let me pray. Our Father, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful, you tell us, for correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness. And so we pray that in your mercy you would do those things to us this morning, where we need our minds correcting, our hearts rebuking. Uh, Would your spirit do that through his word? And would you train us as a people to be those who walk in righteousness, at whatever the cost, in order that Christ might be glorified? So send your spirit uh, to teach us your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just yesterday, a number of us were in York uh, at the day taught by Connie and Karen, uh, the women's uh, training day. If you've been to York at any point, you, you kind of miss the Minster, a huge uh, seven, eight hundred year old building uh, that, that stands on, on the top of the hill, the pinnacle, uh, really of the whole county, let alone just the city. And if you've walked around at any time recently, you'll have noticed there's a courtyard just outside uh, the Minster, a courtyard where the masons were working, the stonemasons are at work. Uh, they've, they've opened it up so you can see what they're doing. And it's fascinating as you see them chiseling away with the same kind of tools they've been using for centuries, carving the kind of, you know, sort of angel faces that are going on the edge uh, of the cathedral, uh, carving the new windows. Uh, they're going to restore those that are crumbling. Uh, it's tremendously skillful work. But it's work of restoration. Uh, th- those men that we saw the other day carving, in one sense, weren't being creative. Now, they were being tremendously skillful, but they weren't being creative. Uh, The dean of York Cathedral, or whoever it is that's in charge of the building project, did not come to them and say that the windows are crumbling, so why don't you knock something up? No, the dean came to them and said, the windows are crumbling, restore them. What they don't want is a workman to kind of suck on their pencil, look, suck through their teeth a little bit and say, well, I'll tell you what I can do for you, mate. What about some PVC ones? Yeah, have you thought about some double glazing? Tenth of the price, all the rage nowadays. No, those masons' job is to restore the beauty that is there already rather than build something new. Uh, what is God's project in the world nowadays? What is God up to in the world? He is up to the restoration project, not a completely new build. And it's vital we understand that. 
If we know anything about the Bible, we know it was a building project in Genesis 1 and 2. As we read God building the universe, the stars, the planets, building the earth, the waters, uh, growing the forest, creating the animals, and ultimately creating man and woman and putting them in the Garden of Eden. We'll also know that pretty quickly that, that beautiful building was shattered, marred with sin. And so from Genesis chapter 3, just a few hundred words into the Bible's story, just a few moments into the life of the universe, God has been about a second project. But it's not a new project, completely different from his first project. When he built the universe, when he created men and women and put us as the crowning glory in the Garden of Eden, uh, he did so to display his glory. And so when we ruined it, when we scarred that creation, he wasn't just going to throw away plan A and come up with a kind of second salvation plan. His aim is to restore what was there to begin with. And that is what he's doing at the moment. Uh, the way that God created, if you, if you know the story, is he began with the scenery, didn't he? He, he created the physical universe, okay, the earth, the world, the planets, the stars. Then he, if you think of a play, okay, or think of a theatre, he started with the scenery, then he creates the cast, Adam and Eve. And so by the end of chapter two, we have two um, sinless creations, the scenery and the cast. And only once more in the entire of history has God, if I can use this word carefully, created anything sinless and perfect. And that is with the star of the show, Christ. Now, Christ as God is eternal. He is not a created being. So please don't mishear me there. But when the Holy Spirit comes and overshadows Mary, that same word that, that, that the Gospels use to describe Mary conceiving Jesus, his human nature, it is an echo of the Holy Spirit hovering over creation in the beginning. It is deliberately painted in, that, in those sort of terms because Jesus, the star of the show, God's son who takes on flesh, becomes one of us, becomes, if you like, part of creation, is the third and final stage of God's plan of creation. He is a new beginning, a new start. So in creation, it goes scenery, then the cast, and then the star. But in God's plan of recreation, okay, as he gets back to, frankly, an even more glorious creation than he began with, he goes in the reverse order. Creation, cast, us, and then the star, Christ. What does he restores creation? What does he do? He starts with Christ. Christ dies, is buried, but he's risen again. He's raised up from the grave, brought out of the tomb in a glorified body. Christ now is even more human than he was on earth, if you can put it like that. Even more glorified, certainly, than he was on earth. He is, to use Paul's language, the first fruits of the new creation. He is the beginning of the second world. And right at the end, God will sort the scenery out again. We're promised that one day Christ will return and the whole universe will be transformed no more volcanoes burning people, no more tsunamis drowning people, no more cancer riddling our bodies, no more, just no more suffering out there in the world. That's at the end. But right now, in between, what is he doing? He is sorting out the cast. Do you see, do you see the order? He created the scenery, the cast, the star, and he does it in reverse order. He sorted the star out first, Christ risen from the grave. Now he's sorting us out, the cast, and finally, 
he'll sort out the scenery. What God is about right now is the restoration of his people to be what they were always intended to be, fully, truly human in his image. Now, I start there because that understanding that God is, is restoring us rather than just doing a complete new project where he sucks souls out of our bodies and puts them into some sort of heavenly floaty paradise, that, that understanding of salvation as recreation is one that has always been undermined. Let me tell you about two worlds. Uh, the first world, well, you can read about it in 1 Timothy chapter 4 if you just flick over the page. Some people had arrived in Ephesus and they were false teachers. We've been warned about them already in chapter 1, but in chapter 4, we get a little taste of what they're teaching. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Okay, so in these last days, that's the era we live in now, some are going to be deceived and teach, well, the teaching of demons. What is this? Well, verse 3 explains it. These are teachers who forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Do you see what's going on there? So we're told there are these demonic false teachers. You expect them to say something like they deny that, that Jesus is God or they deny the Bible is the word of God. But rather, these false teachers who are described in as horrific terms as Paul uses anywhere, deceitful, the teaching of demons, what are they teaching? They're teaching that we shouldn't eat certain foods. And they're teaching that marriage, childbearing, as we'll see later in the letter, in fact, are bad things to be avoided. Don't touch don't marry. What they're doing is trying to get rid of the garden, the Garden of Eden. Okay, their gospel, if you like, is get rid of the garden. Those creation realities are not good for these teachers. Uh, we know a little bit about them from the, the first century and onwards. Often they're called Gnostics, a bit of a vague term, but they're the kind of people who, who taught that the body and physical things were sort of old world. They're, they're the failed plan. God isn't interested in your body, in your marriage, in childbearing. All the things, in fact, that God declared good in Genesis 1 and 2, when he created the food and said you can eat all of it, it is good. He created marriage as a good gift. All those good gifts from Genesis in the Garden of Eden, these guys turn their back on. They're interested in the spiritual rather than the physical. Get rid of the garden. And we might say, well, okay, that was a problem. But it's not our problem. I think we are incredibly close to Ephesus. Perhaps more so now than any other time. Okay, well, when we get in our heads that these guys' false teaching was get rid of the garden, get rid of creation, deny the things that God sets up in Genesis 1 and 2, and focus on the inside, the spiritual When we hear that, and then hear this quote from a Leeds University professor. A woman for me is someone who feels that they are a woman. So professor at Leeds University. A woman for me is someone who feels that they are a woman. That is 2019's version of exactly the same thing that, that Timothy was battling. 
What is she saying in context? She's saying that, that to be a woman is nothing to do with biology, chromosomes, nothing to do with the body. It's all just about what you feel. A woman for me is someone who feels that they are a woman. What matters is what's on the inside, not the body. We mustn't let biology rule us. What she's saying, exactly the same as these guys, get rid of the garden. Get rid of those things that God has woven into creation, the building blocks of the universe, and is now recreating through the gospel. Do you see? Get rid of the garden has been the teaching of false teachers down the centuries. Sometimes they've come into the churches. Sometimes they preach to us from outside. But denying creational realities is for Paul were worthy of being labelled demonic. Now, I start there because that is a context that, that explains why Paul addresses these particular issues, which we have to acknowledge in our society, at least, are controversial, in verses 8 through 15. Uh, last week, if you were here, in the first half of chapter 2, we saw Paul chart this trajectory. He, he talked about God's desire. See, in verse 4, God is our saviour, verse 3, who desires all people to be saved. God wants everyone to come to, to saving faith, everyone to end up in heaven. And that led to Christ's death. Verse 5, there is one God, one mediator, the go-between, the one who joins us to God, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. So God's desire for all men to be saved led to Christ's death as a ransom for all men. Verse 6. And that grounded our duty, verse 1, to pray for all people. God desires all to be saved. Christ died for all people. Therefore, Paul says, pray for all people. The whole context of this passage, look, we need people to be saved, to be these recreated beings that God is restoring. What does that look like? Well, two things this morning. First of all, it looks like restored roles. Verses 8 to 10, restored roles. Verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Likewise, the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Straight away, he distinguishes the genders, doesn't he? Straight away, Paul is affirming the distinctions that God wove into creation in Genesis 1 and 2. There is male and female, and he's not ashamed to address them directly. Now, it's not, of course, that Paul doesn't want women to ever pray, and he doesn't care if men dress inappropriately. It, it, that, that clearly isn't the case. We know that from all over the rest of Scripture. So none of these, th these things are not kind of absolutes, if you like, but they are clearly particular issues, particular expressions of what it means to a man and a woman that he wants to draw the Ephesians' attentions to. Uh, he's not obliterating those gender distinctions and saying just, hey, we're all spiritual now, so it doesn't matter. He affirms the creational dif differences. Men, what is a true man? If I was to ask you that, particularly if you're a guy, if I surveyed you on the door, what is a true man? What would your answer have been? Paul's is clear, verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. A true man is a man of prayer. Much of society tells us we're to be powerful, show that we are strong, independent, stand on our own two feet. And Paul says a true man is someone who knows they are so weak they must rely on someone else. They must be people of prayer. 
And particularly, it's prayer rather than, verse 8, anger or quarrelling. If you were to look up that little phrase, lifting hands in the Bible, you lift hands for two reasons. You either lift hands to pray, to, to, to bless God, or you lift hands in order to strike people. Okay, it's just a sort of Bible term, lifting hands, in order you can then whack them. Paul says your hands are to be lifted up, not in violence, not in dominance, not in quarrelling against each other, and certainly not against women or wives or children, but rather in prayer to God. Now, he's not absolutizing the position. Okay, if you read all the Bible, you, you will see that people pray in all sorts of different positions. Sometimes they're lying down on the floor, sometimes they're standing, sometimes they've got their hands upturned, sometimes they're raised. I don't think that's Paul's point. Rather, he's focusing on the fact that we should be prayerful rather than quarreling. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he, that he seems to think that either, either sin will prevent you praying or prayer will prevent you sinning. That there is contrasts. So yes, women should be praying. But men should be taking a lead. I think that's his point. Particularly in, in public worship, when we gather together as a church, in every place, verse 8, I don't think he's just saying, you know, when you're at work, lift up. He's talking about when, we, when you gather together. That seems to be the context of all chapter 2, really. Uh, men, it, it is our duty to take a lead in prayer. And that is true in the home. And it's doubly true when we come together as God's family. In some ways, God's family is just an extension of the family originally, Adam and Eve. When we gather together for prayer meetings, it is good men for you to take the lead. Okay, many, many people find it difficult to pray out loud. We're worried about what people think, or we're worried we'll say the wrong thing, or pray the thing that someone prayed just now. Or, okay, and and that's, those are understandable fears. Uh, men, you take the lead. Don't make your wife do it. Don't sit back, but take the lead. If you want to be really blunt, if someone's going to look stupid, make it you. Now, you won't look stupid anyway. It doesn't matter if you pray something that doesn't sound brilliantly theological. But the point is you go over the top first. That is the call. Take the lead. And just ask yourself in your life in general, which way are your hands pointing? Your, your raised up hands. Are you more... I hope no one here is a man of literal physical violence. But are you more a man who, who finds it... Um, easier to use your words to strike down your wife, your children, your colleagues than use your words to pray to God? Uh, are you a man whose hands are pointed up to heaven in praise or essentially pointing down to others to slap them down? And this is all part of God's gospel desire. We pray in order that people might be saved. Paul turns his attention to women. What's the restored role for women here? And he, he, he focuses on dress, verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. I think those are the principles, modesty, respectability, and self-control. He gives particular examples, so not braided hair. I spent most of my week trying to understand what braided hair was. Um, I do not think that Paul is saying you cannot plait your hair, for example, or you can never wear a gold earring or a pearl earring as if it was okay to wear diamonds and rubies, but just not gold. Now, I, I, Paul's point is, your dress, or your focus rather, should be on, verse 10, good works, 
rather than your appearance. It's not against beauty. It's not against dressing nicely or other Bible isn't. And there's reasonably strong evidence that uh, in Ephesian culture, in the world in which Timothy lived and worked, um, the kind of excessive braiding of hair, sort of piling up your hair in really incredibly ornate ways, was a demonstration, putting pearls and all sorts in, was a particular demonstration either that you were super rich and wealthy or that you were some sort of, well, a courtesan would be a polite word for it. The point is that the way women should dress as Paul should be in line with the people they've been recreated to be, godly women reaching out with the gospel to a fallen world. It's interesting, it fascinates me that, that he goes for, for dress. You know, he's just gone for prayer with the men and he goes for dressing with the women. Why is that? You know, men, I want you to pray, likewise women dress you know, rightly. Why does he make such a big deal of dressing? I promise it's something for, for, for you guys to talk about uh, afterwards. You'll have more insight, no doubt, than me. I just wonder, given that he's in this whole section about Christ being our saviour, God wanting all people to be saved, I, I, I just wonder if, if Paul is thinking big picture. Paul knows that actually how we dress is often linked to our understanding of the gospel. Why? So often we use our clothes, don't we, to, to prove that we are somebody. We've been doing this since the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked in the garden. What's the first thing they did? You know, they could have made a, a weapon to protect themselves against God or something, but instead they clothed themselves. Clothes were their way of trying to cover over their shame, to say, no, no, I'm okay here. We use our clothing to say, look, I'm okay because I'm beautiful. I'm okay because I'm powerful. I'm okay because I'm wealthy. I'm okay because I'm desirable. I'm okay perhaps because I'm available. But the way we dress is to give an impression. My children love dressing up. They're all dressing up as Peter Pan or Cinderella or they're playing characters. But I'm not sure we ever grow out of it, do we? Or there's a danger we don't. If we're not secure in who we are, a forgiven sinner, someone clothed in Christ's righteousness, someone who doesn't need to prove myself in any way to the world because God has fully and finally accepted me. If I'm not secure in that, then I will desperately try and prove myself in some way or another. And one possible way, well, is how we dress. Is our dress to seduce, to show off, or actually is, is most of our effort going into verse 10? godliness and good works where is our energy our time our money spent restore paul says those roles men taking a lead spiritually in prayer women clothing themselves with the good deeds that's ultimately what eve was created for wasn't she she wasn't created because adam was bored or lonely but she was created to help adam in his task the task that god had given him of filling the world caring for the garden, developing it, and glorifying God. Good works are what Eve and all descended from her were created for. Restored roles. Secondly, finally, restored relationships. This is verse uh, 12 through 15, perhaps the most controversial uh, verses uh, in all of 1 Timothy. Verses 11 through 15, sorry. Restored relationships. 
Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Paul turns to leading and teaching. Okay, they're separate activities, leading or teaching, and says they are not permitted for women. And straight away, culturally, the heckles are up. But let's start with the reason. And you see what the reason is, verse 13? Well, he's back to the garden, again, back to creation. Two reasons. First of all, verse 13, the first reason is creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. There is a prior, a, 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 an order, rather, a chronology in creation. Now, God didn't need to do that. He could have created man and woman, bang, at the same time, couldn't he? It's not like he has to do things in order like us. You know, if we're, if we're going to make a cake, we have to make the base first and then the icing. And, but God would just go, bang, and the whole thing's there. He could have done that with Adam and Eve, but he didn't. He created man first and then woman. The story is told very clearly. So there has always been that order. Adam is the head, the leader, there to care for, protect, cherish, nurture Eve. Creation, but also corruption. That's slightly harder to understand, I think, verse 14. Adam was not, so and, here's the second reason, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Eve was deceived, not Adam. Now, I don't think Paul is saying, look, women, you, you mustn't teach because, because you guys are so gullible. You know, you, you'll never get it right. Leave it to the men. The reason that's not the case is because if you really thought that, he would never allow women to teach. It would just be a blanket ban. But elsewhere in the letters, it's clear he does want women teaching. In fact, he commands them to teach in certain circumstances. We thought about that yesterday. Titus 2, older women to teach younger women. In 2 Timothy, um, Timothy is reminded that it's his mother and his grandmother who taught him the faith. So this is not some sort of blanket ban. In Acts, we read about Priscilla and Aquila, married couple who teach Apollos in some sort of informal setting. So it can't be that women are just so gullible, Paul says, they can never teach anything. Okay, we wouldn't have had the day yesterday if that was the case. Rather, what I think he's saying is this. When Adam was created, it was him who received the commandment, do not eat of that tree. Eve wasn't created yet. Okay, did you pick that up in the story? You remember Adam and Eve were not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When God gave that command, don't eat that fruit, Eve didn't even exist. It was Adam's job to teach that to her. Therefore, when Adam takes a fruit, he is sinning with a high hand. He knew full well, explicitly what he's doing. He was not fooled. Whereas Eve was deceived. Now, she's still guilty, but she was tricked by the serpent. The blame ultimately in the Bible ends on Adam, not Eve. It's always Adam who's blamed for the fall, not Eve. He was the first created, and he was the one who received the word of God. He was not deceived. Rather, she was taken aside by the serpent. Uh, therefore, Paul applies it in three ways. No teaching. We've already said uh, that's not absolute. Uh, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach. There are some occasions where a teaching is appropriate. Uh, women, women teaching other women, women teaching children, uh, and possibly in just less formal church context. context rather. Now, 
evangelicals will disagree about this, okay, for where exactly the lines are drawn. Is it okay for, you know, to get a woman to speak at your university mission week? Is it okay to get a woman to speak on a CU meeting on a Friday night? Is it okay for a woman to teach Sunday school to the adults on a Sunday morning? Now, people have drawn the line in different places there, and I don't want to get into all the nitty-gritty now. The basic principle, though, that we've got to uphold is that, that in the church-gathered context, so the preaching that is going on now, that is a male role. Not because of ability, because of those order that God wove into creation. So no preaching in the, the, the gathered meeting of the church. No ruling. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Uh, some people have said the two things go, go together. So it's only that, that women can't sort of preach with authority. But as long as, um, as, long as there's a sort of man there saying, yeah, this is okay then she's allowed to preach. Now, first of all, to me, that just sounds more patronising, frankly. But, but either way, I think Paul is distinguishing these two activities. It's not just that they can't preach authoritatively, but no, don't preach or exercise authority. Uh, basically, as you'll go on to say in the next chapter, uh, elders, those who are given the responsibility for shepherding, governing the church, they are to be men. It is a male role. Just as the husband is the head of the family, so in God's family, elders are put as those in authority. Uh, That's why women are to learn, in verse 11, with quietness and submissiveness. Quietness doesn't mean silence. In verse 2, we're all to live quiet lives. It's the same word. Uh, We pray that the, the, the rulers, you know, the authorities, the kings, the emperors will govern us in a way that allows us to live quiet lives. Paul obviously doesn't mean silent lives, as if no Christian ever speaks. It's just a sort of godly, unrebellious life, if you like. And it's important we notice the third command uh, in there, which we could easily read over, is verse 11. Let a woman learn. Now you might say, well, yeah, it's obvious, isn't it? But it's not to all cultures. In our culture, standing up and saying there are some roles that are gender-specific is horrifically you know, unpolitically correct. Okay, it's unpopular in our society, isn't it, to say, no, 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 male-only leadership. But in other cultures, it's unpopular to say that it's right for women to learn. In Paul's culture in particular... Uh, first century, the Roman Empire, it is not the case that everyone thought women should be educated. But Christians have always said, because the sexes are equal in value, even if they have different roles on occasions, then of course women should be just as well taught as men. So part of your role as women is to learn in order that both you grow yourself, but that you might be a blessing to others. You might be able to teach others in the particular context to which you're called. And the context that Paul brings to mind first, in verse 15, I think is that of the family. It's a confusing verse, isn't it? Verse 15, yet she, so the woman, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, Paul is not saying there, you get to heaven by having a kid. Okay, that's just very obviously not the case, is it? We, we know that from the rest of the Bible. So that can't be what he's saying. Neither is he saying, I think, you know, if you trust Jesus, then you won't die in childbirth. Sadly, that is not the case. We read of people not just in our newspapers, but in the Bible, who die in childbirth, who are Christians. 
Uh, rather, I think what Paul is saying here is, look, it's not that women are excluded from the church community, but rather, as those who've been recreated by the Spirit, if they walk in the path of godliness, which on average for most people, particularly in Paul's day, would be marriage and motherhood, then they will be saved. So saved through childbearing is saying if they accept this sort of right gender roles, stop rebelling into the teaching of the false teachers we came across in chapter four, who said no marriage, no childbearing, but rather say, no, I want to live the kind of life that God commands, that God set up in Eden. That is, if they are essentially holy women, they will be saved, not by their holiness, But our holiness, if you like, for all of us, is the path on which we walk until we arrive in heaven. You can tell if someone is forgiven, in part, by whether they walk a holy life. So, of course, you can be saved without having kids. There are plenty of single men and women in heaven. But Paul, I think, is generalising and saying, those who are born again into this new creation uh, will be saved if they accept this holiness pattern that is woven into the first creation. Three things as we conclude very quickly. Uh, First of all, learn it. Are you clear on this? there There are mountains of books written on this passage. And honestly, ask yourself honestly, if you're hearing this and you say, look, I'm a Christian, but I just don't like what I'm hearing. Honestly, look at the verse... Uh, Look at verse 12 and ask yourself, if we took that verse out on the street and asked a hundred people what it meant, not whether they liked it, not whether they agreed with it, but what does it mean? I think we get a very clear answer. People have tried to muddy the water and say, well, the word actually means this, or he's just writing in this context. It is really not very difficult to understand. Big picture. So we're meant to learn it, understand Paul's pattern, God's pattern. We're meant to live it. We don't want to try and improve on God's order. Grace restores nature. We need to live these things out. A point male elders only have men preaching, women dressing as uh, God wants you to dress, men taking the lead in prayer. We need to live out these roles and not think we know better 2,000 years later. We've moved on from you, God. It'd be like taking the Mona Lisa and saying, well, I could probably touch that up a little bit. That was okay for sort of 400 years ago, but what about we give us some glasses? Okay, what about some sprinkles, some sparkles? Come on, we've moved on from just those sort of days. Now, God's order is good, so we live it out. Men, take the lead in prayer. So learn it, live it, and finally love it. There's a real danger with these kind of patterns, these kind of verses that we sort of... Okay, well, I've got to... It is a good thing. It is not that God has shackled us. He is freeing us to be the people we're created to be. It is a good, freeing thing, if you're a man, to take the lead in prayer, that you're becoming the person you were meant to be. It is not going against your nature. It is going against your sinful nature, but not against your created nature. Uh, women, if, if you do end up having kids, for example, celebrate that. Don't be embarrassed. Oh, I'm, I'm just a mum. That's a terrible sentence. You're not just a mum. Rejoice in your motherhood. And we shouldn't be ashamed of having these, um, this sort of godly ordering uh, worked out in church. We shouldn't worry that somehow this is going to hinder the gospel. Well, when people hear this, they're never going to want to become Christians. Well, I don't know who's going to want to become a Christian leads or otherwise. But if God says it, it's a good thing, 
then we can't strengthen his missionary cause by disobeying him. Okay? But sin and rebellion never helps the gospel flourish. So even if it's something completely culturally unacceptable, we stick with it. And that will strengthen the chance of the witness being strong and powerful. Remember the whole of 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 is about how we might behave in the church which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church holds up the gospel and holds it out to the world. If we mess around with how God wants his church structured, it is going to weaken the witness. Therefore, dampen down these gender roles, smerge them all together, and the witness will be less powerful. Because ultimately, all of this is a picture of Christ. When Paul preaches, as it were, to the Ephesians, the same church in the letter of the Ephesians, and preaches on the, on the story of Adam and Eve in Ephesians 5. He says all along, Adam and Eve was really about Christ and the church. Adam was a picture of Christ, and Eve, the bride, was a picture of the church. So gender roles are integral to the gospel. Not men better than women, but rather men picturing Christ, who takes the lead who heroically lifts up his hands, not just in prayer, but in complete supplication to God, not my will but yours, gives himself to death in order to clothe his bride with his righteousness. If we smerge men and women together, say it's what you feel, not your body, we are beginning to deny one of God's main pictures of the gospel. Male, female, man, husband and wife. Christ loves you. His plans for your life are good. If you've heard some of this and thought, this is difficult, I don't like it. Remember, it comes to you, not just from Paul, but from Christ by his spirit. It is good. It is restoring us. It is rebuilding the garden. Let's not join those like the professor who want to get rid of the garden, but rather as we preach and live out the gospel, we are the little foretaste of the new creation to come. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we praise you that you have given us your spirit and your word, that we're not in the dark as to how you wish us to live, uh, but rather you have made yourself clear. We praise that you are a good God, that your law is not a burden, but ultimately a delight. They are pleasant paths in which to walk. So give us, we pray, a taste, a thirst for righteousness, where things this morning have challenged us, Uh, Give us your spirit in double measure, we pray, that we might uh, believe and taste and see that you are good and your way is good. Give us courage to live out roles where society would stand against us. And we pray that in your mercy, uh, in your kindness, in your patience, you might, through this church, hold out the gospel to the world around and men and women might come to the knowledge of Christ and rejoice in him, the husband who gave himself for the bride. We ask all these things, therefore, in his name and for his glory. Amen.